0: You all read in the uh, in our bulletin about uh, Bell Wiley. Uh, many of you have known him for a long time and are familiar with his work in the field. I suppose uh, the best known is uh, the set of books which uh, somehow didn't come my way in the draw, Johnny Reverend Billy Yank, The Life of the Common Soldier in the Civil War. He has done many other things, however, uh, both published and uh, Interestingly enough, he's been one of the scholars uh, in the field who has not been unwilling to serve in public capacities uh, and incapacities sometimes which have caused him great uh, mental stress and strain. I'm thinking, of course, uh, to his service particularly uh, in 1961 on the Civil War Centennial Commission in uh, Washington. And I won't uh, bore any of you, uh, most of you know the details of some of the problems there, but. It's pretty rather unusual, I think, in our day when a scholar from a university gets involved in the kind of troublesome and very difficult uh, uh, situations and problems that he had to solve uh, without all the support that he should have had at the time. Instead of speaking on uh, Johnny Reverend Billy Yang, and I've heard him speak on this four or five times, he has a different title each time, but it's the same talk. <laughs> uh, uh, you may be interested to uh, know that his first appearance before this club was in December, is that right, Bill? December 1948, when he talked about, talked. Uh, I think the subject was On the Trail of Billy Yank, and John, is that right? On the Trail of Billy Yank. On the Trail of Billy Yank. Uh, he's appeared here a number of times since, and I think we're indeed fortunate to have him come on such a very unpleasant day all the way from Atlanta to speak to us on Mary Chestnut's Diary from Dixie. Bill White.
1: Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to meet with you again and to renew friendships that have meant a great deal to me over the years. Uh, Before I start my talk, I would like to make what you might call preliminary, two preliminary announcements. Some of you are collectors of Civil War books and there is uh, an unusual and a very good Civil War item that will not receive wide publicity, and it's written by a retired uh, orthopedic surgeon of New York City uh, who now lives in uh, New Hampshire, and his name is Dr. Mather Cleveland, or Mather Cleveland, named for Cotton Mather, uh, of whom he is a descendant. And the title of the book is New Hampshire Fights the Civil War. Ordinarily, that would not be a book that uh, would attract uh, much interest. And ordinarily, I perhaps wouldn't mention such a book. But it is unusual in that uh, he made the rounds of his state, and he collected a great many manuscripts in private possession. And uh, large uh, segments of these manuscripts are reproduced in the book. Another feature of the book is that in the back there are a great many Civil War photographs. And some of these are by an obscure photographer whom I think was as equally talented uh, as Matthew Brady. And uh, if I remember correctly, the photographer's name was Moore. And when I visited New Hampshire in 1963 and uh, was told of these pictures and saw them in the New Hampshire Historical Society, uh, urged that uh, knowledge of them uh, be disseminated and uh, that the Library of Congress be permitted to copy them, and this was done. Uh, but Mather has reproduced uh, many of them, and their scenes in Georgia and South Carolina. For the most part, individual soldiers, uh, soldiers' families, visiting them and that sort of thing. Wonderfully human portraits they are. Uh, the other item I wanted to mention is the fact that uh, the best biography of Forrest, First with the Most Forests by R.S. Henry. Uh, Robert S. Henry is now an old man. Uh, He will be 80. Uh, He is 80 this month, October. Uh, He's an invalid uh, confined to his bed in Alexandria. And uh, the Macauic Mercer Press uh, planned to reproduce this book, but in 1965 it had to discontinue its reprint program because of the pressure of other business, but because of the warm friendship between C.O. Johnson and uh, R.S. Henry and because uh, R.S. Henry is an old man and wanted to see his book come out again, uh, the Macaulay Mercer Press decided to go ahead and do this one book and it will appear about uh, November 1st and uh, it will have some corrections uh, and additions and it is, the will be, the only major forest biography in print, Uh, save that by John Allen Wyatt, uh, That Devil Forest, uh, which uh, was uh, written first uh, in the late 1800s and uh, reprinted during the Civil War centennial. I've been interested in Mary Boykin Chestnut a long time, because uh, when I did my Ph.D. dissertation at Yale, in uh, 1931-32 i used her diary from dixie as one of my sources my dissertation was on the negro in the confederacy and she has good information in her diary on uh, negroes in the confederacy i used the 1905 edition of the book which was edited by isabella martin who was a young friend of Mrs. Chestnut's when Mrs. Chestnut was in Richmond during the Civil War? Uh, she, like Mrs. Chestnut, was from South Carolina, and the other editor was Martha Avery, A-V-A-R-Y, and their edition was 150,000 words, but they left out uh, much of the best material, uh, material highly critical of the South and of slavery material treating of the tensions between Mrs. Chestnut and her husband. Uh, they just thought it was unbecoming uh, to put such things uh, in print. Then in 1949, Ben Ames Williams uh, got access to the 48 manuscript volumes which uh, are in Mrs. Chestnut's handwriting and are now deposited in the South Carolina Anna Library at Columbia, South Carolina. And he had a typescript made of these volumes, and he edited a much fuller edition, 300,000 words. And he did not leave out anything because uh, of sensitiveness uh, to Southern feeling. But there are 400,000 words in the 48 manuscript volumes, and that means that he left out uh, about 100,000 words. And... uh, he left out, uh, he told me, uh, he's been dead about 12 years, uh, poetry and uh, routine material and uh, trivia. And uh, I wanted to know the nature (coughs) of his editing. And after a great deal of searching, about a month ago, I found out that the typescript from which he worked was in the Baker Library at uh, Dartmouth College. And uh, I am getting Xerox copies of uh, those uh, type sheets. But the librarian sent me some samples, and I'm going to pass these around. And uh, in uh, Ben Ames Williams' own handwriting are materials that he inserted. And uh, they do not change the character of uh, Mrs. Chestnut's narrative at all, but a historian wouldn't dare. <laughs> Uh, Mm -hmm. to take these liberties. For example, he writes in on November 20, 1861, the entry for that day, Slidell and Mason seized under the flag of England. Something good is obliged to come from such a stupid blunder. The Yankees must bow the knee to the British or fight them. Those are not Mrs. Chesson's words. Those are Ben Ames (coughs) Williams' words. Now, there are materials in her diary that indicate that these were her sentiments and uh, Ben Ames Williams was uh, preparing an edition for wide circulation and popular reading, and uh, he felt that it was uh, justifiable to do such a thing, and perhaps he's right, Uh, but it's the kind of thing uh, that a historian couldn't do, and so you can let those uh, circulate. Uh, I'm having difficulty about getting permission to quote the typescript uh, in the article uh, that I have written uh, on Mrs. Chestnut. The Baker Library can't give me the permission because they own only the physical property, uh, the typescript itself. And uh, then I thought maybe the uh, Ben Ames Williams uh, estate uh, had the publication rights. And I uh, first telephoned Florence Williams, who, who is with it, whom I have known well over the years and uh, talked with her and then I sent her a little form to sign to whom it may concern uh, Belle I. Wiley has my permission insofar as I have the right to grant the permission uh, to quote uh, from the typescript used by my late husband, Ben Amos Williams in preparing his 1949 edition of Mary Boykin Chester's diary. She sent my letter back to me. She says, I'm delighted that you have located the typescript but I quote her exactly, please, Belle, I do not want to sign the attached paper. And all, the only way I can figure is that she's an old woman and she thinks that this might some way uh, get her into trouble, which it couldn't because uh, of the way it's phrased. Then I wrote to the people who uh, are the residual heirs of the Chestnut estate, two old ladies living over in Camden, South Carolina, and asked if I could quote the originals. And uh, after a considerable delay, I got a uh, letter from the husband of one of them, retired Admiral Keith Glover, and he said, I've talked with my wife and her sister uh, about your request, and I have to report that they are reluctant to grant uh, which was a nice way of saying they will not let <coughs> you do it. Clyde,
2: what am I going to do? I don't know. Sir, it's says the public domain, you don't need me permission. I don't know. Oh, yeah.
1: Well, we'll talk about that. I think Clyde is right. Uh, I don't think that uh, a private manuscript uh, ever uh, ceases to be be, uh, the possession uh, of the family and and the descendants. Yes, Uh, that is is, uh, Ben Ames-Williams' edition. Uh, Can I quote Ben Ames-Williams' edition? Because it's been published.
2: It's in the public domain now. After 56 years. No, no.
1: <laughs> I think you're wrong. Uh, I hope you are right.
2: <laughs>
1: but, but I'm going to explore that. I, I have written today uh, to Houghton Mifflin, uh, the vice president and editor-in-chief, asking him if he can give me permission to quote the 1949 edition. Also asking him if he can give me permission to quote the typescript and i'll be very much interested because these legal questions have risen uh, many times with publishers
0: and uh, i'm hoping that he can
1: give me the answer
0: well, I, I know what he said th- uh, what what you're thinking of i believe there has been a court case that said a an unpublished manuscript or a manuscript deposited in a public library or a semi-public library constitute common law publication and therefore may be quoted without reference to the previous owners of the manuscript is that what you're thinking yeah.
1: of? Right. Yeah. But but that's a troublesome
0: case. The, the South Caroliniana Library uh,
1: that has these originals uh, refused to let me quote the originals and referred me to the family. Uh, the family probably deposited it on the condition that it could not be quoted uh, without its permission. And, and if that's the case, then, then your court then case would, wouldn't, wouldn't, apply. wouldn't apply. So uh, it's, it's a difficult circumstance. But it's a horrible thing. Uh, When a historian uh, can't make brief quotations uh, from uh, uh, a manuscript that has been published, this is true. And I I don't want to be dogmatic. You may be right, Uh, but I've got to find out. Uh, Well, yes, I thought of this. Uh, uh, If if I publish it in one magazine, that I have in mind, I'll get $200. And if they sue me, I'll say, well, here's what I've got, $200. Or if they threaten to sue me, you can have it. I don't want it. Uh, which is not absolutely true but, <laughs> uh, but at least it would take the ground out of the most of them for, for the suit. Uh, I'm handicapped tonight by the fact that I have uh, written this 24 page piece Mary Boykin Chestnut and her diary from Dixie and uh, I will not read a manuscript uh, I think it's deadly uh, to read a manuscript and so I'm going to talk Uh, from the manuscript, but it will not be uh, a smooth speech, and I like to try to make a smooth speech, but uh, I hope you will be forbaring and uh, understanding, and I'm going to watch my watch and uh, not go on uh, unduly, because uh, the best part of these sessions is the discussion that uh, comes after it. Ben Ames-Williams was greatly attracted to Mary Boykin Chestnut, as were the men who lived in uh, her own era. Uh, she was a uh, sparkling, uh, attractive, uh, exceptionally intelligent woman. And he made his <coughs> principal feminine character in House Divided, Cinda DeWayne, uh, he based her on Mrs. Chester. And his wife, Florence, laughingly said that Ben was in love with Mrs. Chester. And I think maybe he was. In his uh, introduction, to the 1949 edition of the diary, and let me urge you, if you read the diary, and let me urge you to read the diary, because there are not many single sources that contain as much uh, revealing information about what was going on in the Confederacy as does this remarkable woman's diary from Dixie, and it's available in a deluxe paperback edition for $2.45, uh, uh, I believe and you would thoroughly enjoy it. In his introduction to that edition, Ben Ames Williams says, an afternoon with Mr. Pepys, or with John Evelyn, if I could have them for the asking, would not tempt me, but I would give a good deal to listen for an afternoon to Mrs. Chestnut. Elsewhere he referred to Mrs. Chestnut as a woman with a touch of genius. And other leading writers have shared Ben Ames Williams' high estimate, of her. Douglas Southall Freeman, while criticizing the journal for confusion and transposition of events, uh, characterized it as, quote, the most famous war diary of a Southern woman. One of the great editors in American history today is a man named Lyman Butterfield, who's editing the Adams papers. And uh, I wrote him and asked him what he thought about the Chestnut Diary, And he wrote back, the best written by a woman in the whole range of our history, in the same top bracket, with that of Sewell, Byrd, Cotton Mather, John and John Quincy Adams, William Bentley, and Sidney George Fisher. (coughs) Even in their company, her book remains unique as a revelation of a woman's mind and heart. In short, a great book by a great lady. Uh, Not only does she enjoy the distinction of being a great lady, but she probably is the most amply portrayed woman in all of American history, owing to the fullness uh, and the frankness of her diary. What sort of person was she? Well, we uh, know that she was a privileged background. Her father was a United States Senator from South Carolina, uh, Stephen Decatur Miller. And I have uh, here, and I'm going to pass This around, too. Uh, One of the most remarkable uh, manuscripts uh, that I've ever seen. Uh, It's uh, a letter written by Mary Boykin Chesson while she was going to private school in South Carolina to her father in the Senate uh, when she lacked one month of being nine years old. She was eight years old. Plain Hill, March 3rd, 1832. My dear father, it gives me great pleasure to write to you every Saturday when I come home. Mother says she received a letter from you this morning and says you have been speaking on the tariff. I will read my father's speech when it is published. How many eight year old girls do you know (laughs) uh, who would be promising uh, to read uh, anybody's speech uh, on the tariff? Mrs. Anderson at Statesburg is dead. Kitty, and Kitty was her sister, says if she don't dare to ask you for things, who can she ask? Are you not her father? She says, She says, and she will ask you so much as she pleases. You must think of me sometimes, your affectionate daughter, Mary B. Miller. I have two copies of this that I brought along, so uh, we will pass it up. Uh, the handwriting, too, is very good. See, her mother was of a very distinguished background in South Carolina and Mary herself went to a very fine private school in Charleston uh, she became proficient in several languages and uh, when she was 13 years old she met at her school in Charleston James Chestner Jr who was 21 years old and he had just graduated from Princeton he'd been reading law in the office of James L. Pettigrew, P-E-T-I-G-R-U. Let's do another quiz. Anybody know who, <laughs> anybody know who James L. Pettigrew was? Was he
2: the guy that said South
0: Carolina is too small for a too large
1: for Uh He very well may have said that. <laughs> he very well may have said that.
2: <laughs> yes, sir.
1: Yes, sir. And the
2: Unionist
1: uh, at least a federalist would steadfastly without losing the respect of his South Carolina neighbor. Yes,
0: sir. Now, that's an, uh, <laughs> <laughs> an Emory man.
2: I didn't know him. I
1: didn't uh, know about him. Uh, he's a chemist, a Ph.D. in chemistry, but he's a fine historian. <laughs> uh, uh, James L. Pettigrew was uh, a Huguenot uh, South Carolinian and one of the most... Uh, Noteworthy things that he did was on the Sunday that uh, the rector at St. Michael's Church in Charleston first omitted the prayer in the Episcopal service for the President of the United States. He got up from his pew and stalked out of church. And uh, that that took a good deal of courage. Uh, But he was a man of such stature and such standing uh, that he kept the respect. Uh, of his fellow South Carolinians in spite of his dissenting views uh, until his death in uh, 1863. So young James Chesson was reading law with him and uh, just after he met 13-year-old Mary, he went off to England on a steady uh, travel trip and uh, while there, he wrote her, just before he left Charleston, he wrote her, Ah, dear girl, you know not how much I love you. If I could breathe my whole soul into a single word, I would tell you. Six weeks later, he wrote from Paris, I feel the happiness and distinction of being loved by you, and I will endeavor, so far as is in me lies, to become worthy of the girl I love and honor. There are no hopes that stir my soul, no visions bright, which amuse my fancy, that are not colored with thoughts of you. Your smiles, your approbation, your happiness would be far sweeter than success itself and success, when shared by you, would be the earthly happiness to fill my soul. Your letters, which assure me of your love and happiness, are sources to me of pure and boundless joy." Later on, James Chestnut was to appear athish and diffident, as I will bring out, but he did have a romantic streak in him, and uh, writing to then 14-year-old Mary Chestnut, uh, this asserted itself. When she was only 17, uh, they married, and uh, I think that as a study in human nature, uh, this diary uh, reveals how dangerous it is uh, to marry at 17. Uh, relationships were very formal; they didn't actually know each other, and they were vastly dissimilar in disposition and interests. And uh, they lived together until uh, their deaths. Uh, in 1785, uh, but it was not uh, a congenial marriage, in spite of what uh, Ben Ames Williams says. And I know it's not congenial uh, from the things that she wrote in her diary. In uh, February 1861, uh, Mrs. Chestnut went to Montgomery uh, with her husband, who was a member of the Provisional Congress that uh, organized the Confederacy and elected Jefferson Davis president. And uh, He was a strong supporter of Jefferson Davis. Then they went back between sessions to Charleston and they were there on April 12, 1861 when the firing on Fort Sumter took place and she wrote uh, in her diary, at half past four I sprang out of bed and on my knees prostrate I prayed as I never prayed before. But then the fort surrendered uh, without any casualties, as you know, the only loss of life came in the firing of the salute of 50 guns, which uh, Major Anderson uh, was allowed uh, to do as a ceremonial gesture. Uh, Then she was elated, and she uh, joined in the celebration. And in June, she went with her husband uh, to Richmond, the new Confederate capital, where James Chestnut uh, doubled as an aide de Beauregard and as a member of the Provisional Congress. I should have mentioned that He was in the U.S. Senate from 1850 to 1860, and uh, Mary knew the Jefferson Davises in Washington and uh, many other prominent people, and she very much enjoyed uh, Washington society. She spent most of the rest of the war in Columbia uh, and in uh, Montgomery and in Richmond, though she did have six months in Camden, South Carolina in uh, this period, which bored her greatly. And then uh, near the end of the war in 1864, she went back to South Carolina because her husband uh, was placed in command of the Confederate Reserves uh, in that state. Uh, She uh, enjoyed city life a great deal. At the end of a crowded day in Charleston in March 1861, she wrote, Last night as I turned down the gas, I said to myself, Certainly this has been one of the pleasantest days of my life so many pleasant people, so much good talk, for after all, it was only talk, talk, talk. Uh, Largely, uh, because of the exceptional opportunity that it offered her of intermingling with interesting people, Richmond was her favorite place of sojourn during the war. She was a favorite among the city's most important people, the Hacksaws and the Randolphs and the Standards. Uh, She also was uh, close to the Davis's. She had a delightful sense of humor, an outgoing personality. A lot of her popularity in Washington, of course, uh, in Richmond, of course, was due to the fact that James Chestnut was the confidant of Jefferson Davis, and uh, the fact that he was a very rich man because his father was one of the richest uh, planters in South Carolina, and uh, James was his only son and heir. She read widely uh, she read Milton and Shakespeare and Dickens and Thackeray and Hugo and Schiller. Uh, she read uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin several times and made, of course, some very biting comments about that book. Uh, she read the novel Fanny and was shocked by it. <laughs> but she said the book was not, quote, uh, not nastier or coarser than Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uh, men were strongly attracted to Mary Chestnut, as I've already indicated, and she enjoyed their attention. After General Lee bowed low and gave her a warm smile in church in 1863, she noted in her diary, I was ashamed of being so pleased. I blushed like a schoolgirl. General Lee, you know, was awfully dignified, but uh, he uh, liked to be in the company of uh, women, and especially beautiful women. Uh, After the war, when he... uh, went to uh, White Sulphur Springs in Virginia. The young women would gather around him and do obeisance to him. uh, And uh, he uh, liked this very much. And uh, in one of her entries, uh, Mary Chestnut tells of a party that she attended in uh, Richmond and uh, the beautiful Keary sisters from Baltimore were there. Uh, I think maybe Hetty Keary uh, might have been the most beautiful girl uh, in the confederacy uh, she married uh, who did she marry another
0: Harrison.
1: no yes our sister uh, married uh, Burton Harrison uh, Constance Kehring married Burton Harrison no Constance was our cousin I'm sorry uh, she married John Pegram now Pegram I'm sorry because it is Pegram John Pegram and uh, three weeks uh, after the marriage uh, Pegram was killed at uh, hatches run. One day uh, she was riding with her husband, short after married, and a horse breast up against a soldier, and she began to apologize profusely, and he looked up into her beautiful face and he said, Lady, never mind. You might have rid all over me. (laughs) 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 Uh, So, Ms. Chestnut says that uh, she saw General Lee. As we went away, we could see General Lee holding the beautiful Miss Hetty Carey's hands in the passage outside, though we could not hear what they were saying.
2: Uh,
1: then uh, Jefferson Davis, very much to be in her company. On April 27, 61, in Montgomery, she recorded, the President came across the aisle to speak to me at church today. He was very cordial and I appreciated the honor. Two months later, uh, she noted that uh, small at a small gathering in Richmond, the President took a seat beside her and uh, talked for nearly an hour. And not long afterward, uh, at a gathering in the Spotswood Hotel, she was standing, uh, talking to Senator Benjamin Hill of Georgia, and she was standing between two of the famous beauties in Richmond, Mrs. John Stanard and Mrs. George Randolph, and Jefferson Davis came up and took her from Hill and uh, from between the two beauties, offered her his arm, and they promenaded up and down the hall, Uh, while he told her about some of the troubles that he was having uh, administering the Confederacy. And then in 1864, October, when she had gone back to Camden, the President came down to South Carolina to visit, and uh, she gave him lunch uh, in her home. I went out to the gate to meet the President. He met me most cordially, kissed me in fact. And after serving him breakfast, the two talked for a while, Then later he made a public address from the porch of her residence and after the speech was over he was very tired and he came back and she fixed him a mint julep, uh, which I believe is the only reference that I have ever seen to to Jefferson Davis uh, having a drink. Uh, I'm sure that he must have drunk as a young officer on the Western Plains uh, uh, where life was very lonely, but this is the only documentation that I recall. Uh, Jefferson Davis uh, having a drink. Uh, Mrs. Chestnut was always a bit awed by the president, but uh, she was very close to his wife. They had a great deal in common. Uh, Verena Howell Davis was a very, very intelligent woman. They were near the same age. Uh, In March 1861, Mrs. Chestnut was 37, and Verena Howell was 34. Uh, Their husbands were alike, and they were in that they were overly dignified uh, and office. They were both very well read. They both had delightful senses of humor. Uh, They were both sparkling conversationalists, and uh, they both were uh, a bit annoyed by the snobbery of uh, the FFVs, the first families of Virginia. She noted in her uh, diary uh, on uh, one occasion, uh, talking about her own aristocratic associates in South Carolina, the upcountry are new people. She quotes uh, a low-country aristocrat as saying, "The old, the old blood of the cavalier stays near the salt water." And Mrs. Chesnut tartly replied to her, "We are, we are new, fresh, handsome, full-grown, wealthy, accomplished, agreeable, brave, as." Bravest, but she was not devoid of hauteur herself, and she makes some uh, disparaging uh, remarks uh, about the sand pillars, as uh, she calls uh, the uh, yeoman group in South Carolina. Uh, she remained uh, something of a prude, despite the fact that she was very well read and uh, widely traveled. On February 25, 61, at Montgomery, she claimed that William H. Trescott, a fine South Carolina gentleman was too Frenchy, as she puts it, (laughs) in some of the jokes he told her. Two days later, she wrote, I sat with Mr. Robert Smith, who was a congressman from South Carolina. He told me he was a little tight when something or other happened. I always feel as if a man had no moral sense of right or wrong or even decency when he alludes to his own intoxication. Yet she was broad-minded enough to record in her diary a uh, humorous incident at a Richmond dinner party as reported to her by her, her young nephew Captain Johnny Chestnut of the Confederate Cavalry and this throws a great deal of light on Ms. Chestnut because he wouldn't have uh, written her this story uh, if uh, he thought that she was too privileged uh, as Mrs. Uh, Chestnut quotes him They were at a, he was at a dinner in Richmond And uh, there was a lady guest in the party, an FFV. He says her dress was none too high in the neck and by no means tight fitting around her lovely, high born FFV bosom.
2: (laughs) And there's there's a nice bit of sarcasm uh, in that.
1: The oysters were red hot, one fell. She screamed. <laughs> B died for it with a fork. <laughs> Fished it up in a trice. With a fork. Imagine. The muff. I should certainly have risked burning my fingers that time. <laughs>
2: uh,
1: Mary Chestnut uh, was very perceptive in appraising human nature. And... Uh, Her opportunity to observe at close range many of the South's leading personalities, military and political, uh, makes of her diary a very, very valuable source. She was overly generous in her estimate of some of the leaders, including Jefferson Davis, whom she liked very much. Uh, But uh, most of her comments, uh, and she was too harsh on some others, but most of her comments have a high degree of validity and many of them are phrased with a pungency that was as delightful as it was revealed. Of General Lee, whom she admired, she wrote early in the war, Can anyone say they know him? I doubt it. He looks so cold, quiet, and grand. And that's a pretty good characterization uh, of General Lee. And when she heard that uh, a Virginian, James uh, Murray Mason, had been appointed minister to England, Uh, She wrote, my wildest imagination will not picture Mr. Mason as a diplomat. He will say chaw for chew, and he will call himself jeans, and he will wear a dress coat to breakfast. Over here, whatever a Mason does is above law. On January 1st, 64, she wrote, the English can't stand chewing tobacco. Yet they say that at the lordliest table, Mr. Mason will turn around halfway in his chair and spit in the fire, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure is true. Uh, writing of Joseph E. Johnston on December 22, 61, she quoted a kinsman, Hamilton Boykin's, uh, account of a hunting trip that he, Boykin, and uh, Wade Hampton had made with Joseph E. Johnston before the war in South Carolina. And this, to me, is a most revealing comment. Johnston was a capital shot, better than Wade or I, but the bird flew too high or too low. The dogs were too far or too near. Things never did suit exactly. He was too fussy, too hard to please, too cautious, too much afraid to miss and risk his fine reputation for a crack shot. Wade and I came home with a heavy bag, we shot right and left, happy-go-lucky. Joe Johnston did not shoot at all. The exactly right time and place never came. Unless his ways are changed, he will never fight a battle. He is as brave as Caesar, an accomplished soldier, but he is too particular. You must go ahead at a venture to win. And on July 25, 64, after listening to a South Carolinian's praise of Joseph B. Johnston, she wrote, but a general who is known to disdain obedience to any order, who refuses to give the president any information for fear the president will betray him to the enemy, if that is not madness of self-conceit, what is it? And in Lincoln, the North Carolina, on February 22nd, 65, just before uh, Joseph E. Johnston went back to take command of the remnant of the Army of Tennessee, uh, she reported... Uh, this, General Joseph E. Johnston joined us for a walk. He explained to us all of Lee's and Stonewall Jackson's mistakes. He was radiant and joyful. He always impresses me with the feeling that all his sympathies are with the other side." Now that perhaps uh, is not a fair uh, comment about Joseph E. Johnston. Uh, but the fact that he would be radiant and joyful in uh, February February 22nd, 1865 uh, does uh, puzzle one today as it did her then. In October 63, she wrote, Beauregard is sulking in Charleston. He never had much brains and now he is losing heart.
2: <laughs> Bragg,
1: thanks to Longstreet and Hood, had won Chattanooga. So we looked for results that would pay for our losses in battle. Surely they would capture Rosencrantz. This is one of the few times that uh, her spelling is wrong, but uh, you know that uh, Rosencrantz was a a common spelling for that general's name. But no, there sat Bragg like a good dog, howling on his hind legs before Chattanooga. (laughs) Bragg always stops to quarrel with his generals. And March 1564, she wrote, Wade, uh, General Hampton, who was a close friend of uh, the Chestnuts, she called him by his first name, Wade, came with his troubles. Stuart had taken one of Hampton's brigades and given it uh, to Fitzhugh Lee. General Hampton complained of this to General Lee, who told him curtly, I would not care if you went back to South Carolina with your whole division. Wade says his manner made his speech immensely mortifying. It seems General Lee has no patience with any personal complaints or grievances. He is all for the cause. This, too, is a very important and revealing comment. It shows that General Lee could lose his aplomb and his calm. This was a very, very rare thing. Uh, He usually had his (coughs) emotions under perfect control. Uh, But he didn't like it uh, that Wade Hampton came and complained about Stuart. Uh, Uh, taking uh, a a portion of his cavalry and uh, transferring it to Fitzhugh Lee. And uh, this uh, is discussed in uh, Manly Wade Wellman's uh, biography of Hamlet. Mrs. Chesson devotes more space to John Bell Hood than she does to any other gentleman. And uh, she devotes uh, most of the space about Hood to his romance with uh, Sally Preston. I suppose Sally Preston would be the number one rival for Hetty carey as the most beautiful woman uh, in the Confederacy. She must have been a person of exceptional beauty. The twice wounded Hood went to Richmond in November 1864, uh, where he spent several months uh, recuperating, and he bumped around on his crutch to. Uh, charades and parties uh, around the festivities. In his wartime photographs, the 32-year-old hood uh, peering over a formidable array of whiskers looks anything but the gay Lothario. But Richmond gossip in December 64 had him engaged at one and the same time to four of the capital's reigning bells, uh, one of whom was the lovely Lulee Wigfall, the daughter of Senator Wigfall, And Lully, many years later, uh, in her book, A Southern Girl in 61, recalled Hood as, quote, a man of singular simplicity of character and charm of manner, boyish in his enthusiasm, superbly handsome, with beautiful blue eyes, golden hair, broad shoulders, tall and erect, a noble man of undaunted courage and blameless light. Of all the attractive people uh, whom Hood uh, met in Richmond, the one that dazzled him most was Sally, or Buck Preston, as she was known. Uh, Mrs. Chestnut, a woman not given to extravagance in describing people, and especially other women, uh, says this of Sally, who was her good friend, the very sweetest woman I ever knew, the darling. I would not have altered anything about her mentally, morally, physically. Hood, uh, largely under Mrs. Chestnut's discerning eye, courted uh, Sally, and uh, in his courtship he demonstrated the same impetuosity and aggressiveness that he displayed in attacking Yankees on the field of battle. And uh, Buck was flattered by the attention of this uh, military hero, and uh, she encouraged him. to the extent of uh, letting him propose to her and uh, in a sort of a half-hearted way uh, accepting the proposal. But she was repelled by his naivete, his maladroitness, and his importunity, and after Hood left the Capitol, uh, she turned uh, to other suitors. Jefferson Davis uh, also was charmed by Buck Preston. And Mrs. Chestnut makes this uh, entry in her diary telling about the president's visit to Columbia, South Carolina, in october 64 while Jeff Davis stood up while Jeff Davis stood up for General Hood, who was under much criticism then, Buck said she would kiss him for that, and she did. he all the while smoothing down her back from the shoulders as, she, as if she were a ruffled dove. Uh, I rather like that. (laughs)
2: Uh,
1: Dignified, unbending Jefferson Davis, uh, standing talking to this beautiful woman, uh, and as he talks to her, he strokes her back down from the shoulders (laughs) as uh, Mrs. Chestnut astutely observed. She does not remark on how far down he went.
2: Mrs. Chestnut's
1: uh, initial admiration for Hood cooled considerably during his stay in Richmond. She became convinced that he was trying to use his uh, intimate association uh, with the Davises and with people close to the Davises to advance his military fortunes. On January 1, 64, she wrote, General Hood is an awful flatterer. I mean an awkward flatterer. (laughs) I told him to praise my husband to someone else, not to me. Mm -hmm. And her husband was Jefferson Davis's aide and uh, so he knew the importance of shining up uh, to Mrs. Chestnut, but he wasn't smart enough uh, to see that she would see through uh, his awkward flattery. In her entry of February 1364, she quotes Hood as saying to her, the President was finding fault with some of his officers in command, and I said, Mr. President, why don't you come and lead us yourself? I would follow you to the death. And Mrs. Chestnut responded perceptibly and bluntly, if you stay here in Richmond much longer, you will grow to be a courtier. You came a rough Texan. And uh, that in itself is a most perceptive observation. And I'm convinced that Hood went to Richmond uh, as uh, a man without uh, insatiable ambition. But uh, after he was there a while, if not before, uh, he was bitten uh, heavily by the bug of ambition. And he talked with Jefferson Davis, and be it said to Jefferson Davis' discredit, that Jefferson Davis encouraged him uh, to talk about uh, Joseph E. Johnston. And uh, then Davis sent him uh, to the Army of Tennessee as a corps commander and he corresponded with Davis and in the correspondence uh, he reflected uh, disparagingly on his superior and uh, then he had the misfortune to be made commanding general of the army and uh, an army was above his seat. He's he's a tragic character. Uh, He's a man ruined by ambition as I see it. The principal fault that uh, Mrs. Chestnut found with Confederate leaders was their quarrelsomeness, their inability to work together for the common good. On March the 18th, 1861, in Montgomery, while her husband was helping launch the Confederate government, she observed, We are abusing one another as fiercely as we ever abused the Yankees. That's very early. That's before the shooting started. On June 1961, she wrote, Every man wants to be at the head of the affairs himself. Six weeks later she denounced Beauregard's attack on Jefferson Davis as a manifestation of incredible conceit and self-love. On October 3rd, 61, she stated if the Confederacy had chosen to elect Barnwell Rhett president, or had Mr. Davis made Barnwell Rhett Secretary of State, we might have escaped one small war, at least. The war the Charleston muckery is waging with the administration. (laughs) Rhett was the uh, editor of the Mercury. Rhett wanted to be president and was extremely disappointed when he didn't get the job and he fought Jefferson Davis uh, with uh, incredible uh, lack of wisdom and uh, persistency. Mrs. Chestnut early recognized as one of the South's uh, greatest handicaps, ambition, well, dissension nurtured by ambition, pride, and excessive individualism, which I think was associated with the plantation system. On August 21, 61, she expressed concern about the impotence of an aroused democracy whose chiefs quarrel among themselves. Faction is the rock on which we split, she wrote on August nineteen, sixty-two, 62. In October 63, on reporting the hassle between uh, Bragg and his generals at Chattanooga <clears throat> and the proposal to restore Joseph E. Johnston to command in the West, she wrote, The President detests Joe Johnston for all the trouble he has given him, and General Joe Johnston returns the compliment with compound interest. His hatred of Jeff Davis amounts to a religion. A year later, as she saw the mantle of defeat settling over the Confederacy, she observed, We crippled ourselves by intestine strife. One of her greatest concerns was with slavery and uh, with uh, Negroes. Like many other enlightened southerners of her time, she regarded slavery as a great evil. And her principal reason for loathing slavery was the corrupting influence that slavery had on the white men of the South. On March 11, 1861, at Montgomery, she wrote, And uh, this is a very important quotation. Under slavery, we live surrounded by prostitutes. Yet an abandoned woman is sent out of any decent house. God forgive us, but ours is a monstrous system, a wrong and iniquity. Like the patriarch of old, our men live all in one house with their wives and their concubines. And the mulatters one sees in every family partly resemble the white children. Any lady is ready to tell you who is the father of all the Mulata children in everybody's household but her own. Though she seems to think dropped from the clouds. (laughs) And she concludes, my disgust is boiling over. Interestingly, this statement was left out of the 1905 edition because uh, Isabella Martin and Marta Avery just didn't think that this was the sort of thing uh, that uh, ought to be passed along. She hated slavery, but she enjoyed the comforts that came with the institution, such as having breakfast in bed and having a personal attendant with her wherever she went, and having someone uh, that uh, would agree emphatically with whatever she said and shower her with compliments when her ego needed replenishment. Well, I'm going to have to uh, cut off now. Uh, I will say that uh, uh, the diary, perhaps, uh, is uh, most important for what it reveals of the relationships between a man and his wife. Uh, She and Mr. Chestnut, as I have said, uh, were very different. Uh, She was uh, vivacious, uh, volatile, and uh, outgoing and uh, he was reticent and uh, reclusive uh, and reserved. Uh, He was not utterly devoid of a sense of humor. Uh, In March, uh, she recorded uh, in March 1861, she recorded in her diary a story involving uh, former governor of South Carolina, William H. Uh, Gist, uh, Gist, I'm sorry. Uh, Chestnut was at this time on the military board of South Carolina. And he had to go see Gist very early in the morning, still dark, to deliver an important uh, message. And he went into the room and uh, wake Gist up, but uh, Gist was not fully awake. And uh, as uh, Chestnut put it, he sprang up and threw his arms around me and said, Honey, is it you?
2: (laughs) And then she writes...
1: uh, mr chestnut came into my room threw himself on the sofa and nearly laughed himself to extin- extinction imitating again and again the pathetic tone of the governor's uh, grief.
2: <laughs>
1: well uh, there were little flare-ups of jealousy uh, between them and uh, she tells of these on a train ride from camden to charleston in March 61 had some governor John Manning came into the coach uh, where the Chestnuts were riding and he said, I'm looking for a seat uh, for a lady who's uh, traveling in my care. And James Chestnut, being the gentleman that he was, got up out of his seat and walked to another part of the car. And then presently, John Manning came back and, as Mrs. Chestnut says, uh, uh, plopped himself down cheerily in the seat and said, I am the lady. <laughs> and, uh, uh, they had good talk and uh, she said uh, of uh, him that uh, she was, he was uh, the handsomest man uh, as, how did she put it? Uh, he is the handsomest man alive a few days later she had dinner with Manning and uh, some other Charleston gentlemen while her husband was out visiting the camp and uh, when he came in uh, as she records it in her diary he came home enraged and accused me of flirting with John Manning I went to bed in disgust, and I am ordered now not to walk on the battery with Jones. I assured him, I do not tell him everything." And <laughs> this too, the two ladies left out of that edition of uh, the diary. But the shoe was sometimes on the other foot. One Sunday early in the war, when uh, Mr. and Mrs. Chestnut, walking to church, suddenly turned a corner. Uh, they came upon uh, what uh, she describes as a very handsome woman. And this woman uh, rushed up to Mr. Chestnut with her arms extended, and uh, she said, So glad to see you. Didn't know you had come. Why have you not been to see me? And Mary waited in vain for an introduction. (laughs) And uh, then when the talk walk uh, was resumed, uh, she said, Who is it? And uh, James replied, Don't know.
2: Never saw the woman before in my life.
1: She evidently took me for somebody else. And after relating the incident in her diary, Mary added, the subject was renewed again and again until it became a screaming farce, but he stuck to his formula. Never saw the woman before in my life. My teasing retort was, what a credulous fool you must take me to be. And then on a train trip in May 1864, uh, husband and wife traveling together, he got off to get a cup of coffee and the train left. And uh, so she had to go on without him. But she got off at Kingsville, South Carolina, uh, which was a point of changing trains, and waited for him. And she went to a hotel. And uh, when she went to the
0: registration place in the hotel, she was met by the proprietress, uh, whom she describes as uh, a very haughty and
1: highly painted that and she wouldn't give Mrs. Chestnut a room and she said uh, you claim to be Mrs. Chestnut uh, uh, I know the chestnuts uh, I don't believe that this is true and Mary said well we went to school together in Charleston 20 years ago and then the lady uh, did uh, recognize her uh, and uh, she uh, d- still didn't take her in Mary went on to the station she was joined by James And uh, then uh, she uh, told him uh, that uh, the painted woman uh, had told me she had not seen me for 20 years, but that she met you constantly. (laughs) His reply, according to Mary, was, God bless my soul. I never saw the woman in my life. (laughs) And Edmund Wilson in uh, Patriotic Gore uses these two incidents and another similar one uh, to conclude that, quote, Chestnut amused himself with occasional love affairs, not so far as one is told with blacks, but with white women of inferior social status. And I say in the paper, this judgment seems highly questionable in view of Mary's emphatic statement of her views on marital fidelity. In May 1862, she wrote, A philosophic forgiveness of love's wrongs is impossible. Those beautiful wives who piously overlook well everything do not care one thing for their husbands. I settled that in my own mind uh, years ago. Uh, The principal cause of tension uh, between the two people was her love of party. And uh, the uh, girls from South Carolina, uh, the Preston girls uh, stayed in their apartment with them for a month in Richmond during the war and it was almost a continuous party. And every once in a while, as she puts it, uh, Chestnut would lay down the law, no more party. Uh, and he condemned her for extravagance. They were rich, she had money of her own, but he still <coughs> said, you're spending too much money. And, of course, uh, uh, that is uh, understandable. Uh, this is a cause of uh, friction in many marriages of any time, uh, on any level. But as uh, the <coughs> Confederacy moved uh, toward defeat, as they left Richmond, as they were separated, and as it became apparent that the Confederacy would lose, uh, apparently they were drawn more closely together than ever before, and uh, they lived together as uh, man and wife. Uh, until both of them died uh, about a year apart uh, in 1885. But uh, I cannot think uh, that this marriage uh, was uh, what Ben Ames-Williams calls it a warm and tender story. Uh, I just can't uh, see that. The final paragraph. In trying to evaluate the relationships between the Chestnuts, consideration must be taken of the fact that Mary's diary is the account of only one member of the partnership, that it treats of a relatively brief period of their life together, and that this was a time during which war, and a losing war at that, created unusual stresses, anxieties, and disruptions. There are evidences in the diary that the marriage of these two dissimilar people was undergirded by genuine affection, and that the misfortunes experienced near the end of the conflict develop an understanding and an appreciation unknown in their prior <coughs> association.
0: We come now to the question period. And, Father, well, all right. Uh, Mr. Wiley, uh, does she mention anything after Bragg has, has been returned to Richmond as different,
1: different no. advisor. Does she mention anything about him or any comments on him? Uh, I don't recall her making uh, a single statement uh, about Bragg uh, after he came back uh, to Richmond, but uh, it should be borne in mind that she didn't stay there long uh, after he came back. Uh, she left uh, early in May 1864. Uh, he arrived uh, in Richmond uh, about January, uh, 1864, maybe February. Can anybody? Uh, February. 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 So uh, they were not that long together, uh, and uh, perhaps she didn't see much of him. Uh, she tends to comment uh, about people whom she saw uh, as a general rule, though sometimes uh, she wanders from that uh, relationship. Yes, sir diary uh, the the Ben Ames Williams edition of 1949 contains the important parts that were left out. Now I am going myself to study his typescript uh, to check him uh, on what he left out. Uh, but I believe uh, that what he told me is true that he cut out only those things that were repetitious or were poetry or were routine uh, and uh, were not of any considerable consequence I don't believe that it would be worthwhile uh, to go through all the work of editing the 400,000 words if he started editing that put in footnotes and you can write a book while you're footnoting one that you are editing <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: During
1: the Reconstruction period, Uh rants, it was just of reference in her diary after the civil war. Uh, Her diary stops uh, shortly after the Civil War, but we know uh, from uh, other sources that he held one public office, uh, I believe a member of the state legislature. Uh, he practiced law in Camden. Uh, they lived uh, on uh, their plantation, Sarsfield, uh, which they were able to build after the war, and uh, they, they got along pretty well uh, following the, uh, a few months of disruption, uh, but they never really were needed. Uh, the Negroes uh, stayed with them pretty well. Uh, there were between 65 and 70 household servants at Mulberry, uh, the plantation of James Chestnut Sr., and he owned several plantations which uh, the son inherited. Uh, James Chestnut died about uh, 1865, James Chestnut Sr. And so they had lots of land and they had lots of Negroes and uh, uh, they, they they never wanted and they became reasonably prosperous again uh, before they died. Well, uh, the uh, diary
0: terminated around 1626. It,
1: it terminated about uh, June 65. Yeah, and it was not uh, published until uh,
2: 1905,
0: I believe. Right, what, right. What, what happened in all those four year, uh, years?
1: I think it was uh, Isabella Martin's lack of know-how in, in placing the book. Uh, she knew it was good, and she tried to get it published, uh, but without success. My guess is uh, that she didn't start trying Uh, At the time when we had this tremendous uh, interest in civil war, uh, in the 1880s, when uh, Battles and Leaders was published and Battles of Leaders, you probably know in the original edition, though it was an expensive book, or set of books, four volumes, sold 75,000 copies. Uh, There was a great demand then, but Chestnuts died in 1885, Uh, so Isabella probably didn't get around to, to reading the diaries until sometime after that. And then when she tried to publish uh, them, there had been some decline in the Civil War interest as there has been now, uh, after the centennial. <laughs> uh, and then uh, this uh, Miss Avery, who had uh, writing and publishing connections came along and offered to collaborate, and she was the one who was able to get it published uh, in nineteen five. Yes, sir. One more point. I've mentioned this
0: to you before today. Do they like them? me. Uh, was that do you think that was her mother's maiden
1: name? Yes, the, the more I thought about it, uh, since we talked, uh, the more I believe that it was her mother's maiden name. I I'm, 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 I'm fairly sure of that, and I will try to remember to to write you a letter. I have the information in my notes, but it's uh, just gotten away from me. Yes. Sir. I might a
0: question It was a South
1: Carolina family yes. and a prominent South Carolina family. Yes. Sir. Did I
0: misunderstand you at the beginning? When inferring that Ben was inserting into the diary.
1: Yes sir. Yeah, yes, where 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 is the sheet? Uh the 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 uh, yes. Uh, let him see it. Uh, you'll do it. You mean he meant to publish this? Or oh, he did put oh, it. He did This is the published version. And this this is his handwriting. This typescript is what she wrote. And he wrote this in and then he moved down into the <laughs> and actually,
2: uh, with the book <laughs> oh, you you sure? for their own of Yes, sir. Uh, you mentioned, uh, at least the feeling I is that she thought quite a bit about the fact that she was uh, very popular with these
0: different uh, leaders of Confederacy and within the society. What I'm curious about, do these incidents show up in the papers of these other people, like in Blood's
2: writing and then Jeff Davis, to kind of corroborate the. Uh,
1: not in any of their writings, uh, but uh, in uh, Lulie Wakeball's A Southern Girl in 61, and in Mrs. Clement C. Clay's A Belle of the 50s, in T.D.C. de Leon's Belle, Bows, and Brains of the 60s, he was a Richmond newspaper correspondent, uh, he comments on her attractiveness uh, so there are enough other sources uh, to indicate uh, that she's not uh, exaggerating her own charms. Yes, sir. And, and, and you're, you're, you're very right uh, in observing uh, that uh, a historian or, or a lawyer or anybody else uh, dealing with sources uh, has to keep that in mind. That, uh, I, I should have mentioned one other important fact about the diary that I didn't mention. It is not really a diary in the true sense of the word, in that she did keep a diary on scraps of paper during the war, but then immediately after the war, from these scraps of paper, she wrote up uh, these 48 volumes. It makes it a better work uh, from the standpoint of fullness, but uh, also she knows she's wiser a, a bit. <laughs> uh, yes. No, no, but uh, she certainly knew uh, that it was to be preserved, and she knew that she was writing for posterity. Uh, indeed, anybody who keeps a diary. Uh, oh, I shouldn't say that. Uh, most, 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 most
2: anybody. Uh, William
1: Byrd, who wrote in shorthand, uh, perhaps uh, wasn't aware that he was writing for posterity uh, he wouldn't have written some of the things that he did usually his <laughs> interest began i rose uh, i did my dance uh, i said my prayers i was good health uh, in good health uh, and in good spirit but if you read along a little while and i hold this out to my undergraduates to get them to read a good source though i don't quote he said i rogered my wife on the miller table this afternoon (laughs) and i gave her great satisfaction
2: (laughs) 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 i asked
0: you about whether she had any comments on jackson and uh, you said that he probably they probably never met uh did she have any comments on his funeral when he was laid out in the richmond return i believe she was there at that time
1: uh, yes, as I recall, uh, she was uh, in Richmond at the time of his uh, funeral, and it, she may have described the funeral. And I may have forgotten, it, though I have uh, reread the, the, the diary very carefully in the last three months. Uh, I, I was not—I I was interested mainly in the points that I brought out tonight. I wanted to know. Uh, her comments and reflections uh, on the character of Southern society and uh, the relationships between individuals and uh, the causes of Southern defeat. And so I would not have paid uh, particular attention to a description of Stonewall Jackson's funeral. Uh, So you'd better check that. And also, there is an index in the Ben Ames-Williams edition, and you can quickly find any references that she made to Stonewall Jackson.
0: Wiley, uh, at it and I was gap in there when she destroyed it because of?: some Yes,
1: yes, there's a, a gap uh, from about August 1862 to October 1863, and she wrote this up. Uh, she had some scraps left, uh, but she wrote it up largely from memory. Never they never had any children, and this was a source of great disappointment to her and she has some very poignant statements to make on how uh, southern women and uh, southerners generally look down on uh, a childless woman Uh, she felt that she was discriminated against Uh, and she said the men think and incidentally this was one of the other faults that she found with southern society it was dominated by males and she thought that women sometimes uh, were more capable uh, than the males who subordinated them. And uh, she said they expect uh, women uh, to live in the pantries and the kitchens and uh, the nurseries, and uh, then if there are no children, uh, to live with the bare walls. Uh, she was bitter about not having any children. <laughs>
0: right. <laughs> who are these two descendants that are giving
1: you the hard time, and if they aren't uh, They are a Mrs. Metz and a Mrs. Glover. Uh, they are collateral descendants, of course. Uh, they are old women I hope to go to see them uh, go to see Admiral Cato Glover <laughs> and get him to go see his wife and, and uh, his sister-in-law with me and see if we can't persuade him. I don't know what has happened maybe somebody's told them that they've got a gong with the wind here as uh, Clyde very well knows this happens to all too many people uh, who have manuscripts the manuscript is of no material value after Ben Ames Williams' uh, book uh, but whatever reason they have for not wanting to be quoted are, are not valid reasons, but I may not be able to convince them. I may not be able to convince them. Yes, sir. If I understand correctly, the diary of the at the
2: of the war, Fe- February 61,
0: yes, sir.
1: Uh, you just have to draw your own conclusion. She does not herself uh, in, the, in the diary say anything. But this would be my conclusion. Uh, one, uh, an era has come to an end, and she realizes this. Uh, they're in very difficult circumstances for a while, even though not in actual long. Uh Life is disrupted, uh, and uh, she's not uh, in the middle of things. She doesn't have the motivation. Uh, to to keep this full record uh, that she once had. And I think those must be the reasons why she discontinued the narrative. I wish she had continued, because her (laughs) observations on Reconstruction would be very valuable.
3: Let's go home. Let's go home. (laughs) Uh,
1: It's a better source than a rebel war clerk's diary. A rebel war clerk's diary is uh, a good source, but there are things in a rebel war clerk's diary that were inserted after the event. Uh, this we know uh, from uh, an analysis of the document itself. I don't mean to disparage it. Uh, it's still a very valuable record. But personally, I rate uh, Robert G.H. King, K-K-A-N-S, uh, Inside the Confederate Government, edited by Edward Young, as being better than a rebel war clerk's diary. But they're both good. Let's go home. What do you say? I <laughs> suit you all right.
3: <laughs>